0: Okay, we can, stay. We can stay. Good morning everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and this year's Brody Lectureship. To, we, we welcome Dr. Beers and he will be introduced to us now uh, by Dr. Rick Anello. Dr. Anello is a professor of medicine and he's our vice chair for research in the Department of Medicine, a pulmonary researcher and clinician interested in pulmonary fibrosis, of course and uh, will tell us about Dr. Beers. Thanks, Rich. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to, to uh, welcome everyone to the annual Jerome Brody Memorial Lecture. Um, before I introduce our featured speaker, Dr. Beers, um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the late Jerry Brody, for whom the lecture is named. Um, Jerry was a graduate of Dartmouth College and uh, Tuck School of Business, and he was an energetic, visionary individual. He conceived and initiated the movement to establish high-quality destination restaurants in New York City, beginning with uh, the Four Seasons, uh, subsequently Gallagher's Steakhouse, and the New York, the uh, Grand Central Station Oyster Bar. Um, this is Jerry at the Oyster Bar. The unfortunately Jerry died of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in 2001, um, a disease which we still struggle to understand and treat. His widow, Marlon Brody, uh, met him in Paris in 1954, when she was translating for John Steinbeck, and became his business partner there, and when they moved back to New York City, the, they eventually moved to upstate New York, and ultimately established uh, a leading thoroughbred breeding farm, Gallagher Stud, which to this day Marlon runs. Uh, it's, uh, she established an endowment with gifts made in his memory. Which is the source of the funding for this yearly lecture, and as well as supporting idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis research at Dartmouth. And we are most appreciative of her generosity and are also pleased to have her with us today, Ms. Brody. pleasure to introduce Dr. Michael Beers, who comes to us from the University of Pennsylvania, um, where he did his undergraduate medical school postgraduate training, research training, uh, before joining the faculty there. Uh, I believe this is not his first trip out of Philadelphia. Uh, but and your native Philadelphia as well. Um, he has received numerous awards. He's the editor of numerous journals. Um, he is a, a, leading, a leading figure in the interstitial lung disease research and particularly the role of epithelial cell function Dysfunction um, and its role in repair, normal and otherwise. Um, and he, in addition to his many, his many accomplishments uh, nationally and internationally, has published over 120 papers in that domain. Um, and he's going to tell us a bit about is work in the biology of epithelial cell function, dysfunction, in rare diseases, as it, as it informs a less rare disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And um, without further ado, I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Beers.
1: Just make sure the volume is okay. Can you hear me at the remote sites and everywhere else? Is this okay? So, first of all, thank you to the Birdie family for asking me to come up here and for funding this. It's a, it's a great honor to be up here to Dartmouth. It's my first visit, and no, it's not my first time out of Philadelphia. You stay in Philadelphia because your father works for the University of Pennsylvania. You get tuition. It's for free. You have five kids who also get free tuition, so you sort of have the golden handcuffs and you can't be recruited <laughs> elsewhere. But it is, it is a great benefit, and, I, and I'm grateful for, for the education I received at Penn. And so what I want to do is try to, to do this on all levels. I won't apologize. I'm a physician scientist. So I'm going to show you a lot of basic. M- MD, I think some people at my institution think stands for mouse doctor, and I won't be apologetic for that. But I think I can inform you a little bit about what the changing spectrum is, where we've been, and where we're going in the treatment of this really devastating disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. First, a couple of comments. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and a number of other diseases are rare diseases. So what what is a rare disease? And basically, the classification is up here. It's basically any medical condition for which there's less than 200,000 people in the United States. And you can see that there's 25 million Americans, 6,000 rare lung diseases. In our space, in lung, in lung land, we basically have alphabet soup of these rare diseases. We're not going to talk about all of these today, but there are a couple of these, specifically Hermeski-Pudelak syndrome um, and a couple of others that inform us about a rare disease. IPF is also a rare disease. There's less than 200,000 cases, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, depth, in a second. So why even bother studying these? And why, why, as an academic clinician, why would you want to see them? Why would you want to treat them? You know, there's not a lot of them in mean, the clinic. They come in every now and then. Well, they really do provide insights, we think, into the pathogenesis and treatment of other more prevalent lung diseases. And I'll, and I'll try to make that case for you for the rest of the talk. We, we also encounter this in our training and beyond. And it really does submit sort of future directions. And I can tell you that my encounters with, with many of these diseases have sort of helped me to change course sometimes in the, in the course of my academic career. And there is a tremendous unmet need. The other part of this is that you as a scientist or you as a clinician get to interact with patient uh, groups. And you get to really put a face on your disease in terms of what the problems are, what they confront. So there's, a, there's real value, in, I think, in doing this. And the other two reasons is for all of the trainees, they end up on your boards. So I hope that you'll pay attention. At least I have a couple of diseases that might end up on your boards. uh, more questions, and so I'll try to help you out there. And they're just plain cool. I think that some of these are just fascinating in the way that these, that these develop and what you see. Okay, so... It, IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's one of multiple, but a major subgroup of diffuse parenchymal lung diseases. In the US, um, the prevalence is increasing. This incidence of prevalence is probably higher now than it was when when, um, when these numbers first came out. It's a disease of males, greater than females, and it's a disease of aging. And we'll get into that later on as to what that means. As the name implies, it's unknown etiology, hence idiopathic. We know that there are some exogenous insults that actually promote. Um, the onset of the disease. And there's a genetic component um, or familial IPF for which um, rare mutations have, again, informed us a little bit about causes and pathogenesis. It's a terrible disease. Um, the patients are breathless. They sometimes have unremitting cough at the end, and then they go on. The opportunity is either uh, is to get a lung transplant, which treats one chronic lung disease for another, or end up um, not doing well, and so to succumbing to this in a uh, and, 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 a, and a pattern that's not much different than if I gave you a diagnosis of stage 2A lung cancer, about three to five years. So, so um, truly a devastating disease for those that have it and for the families that have to experience it. So, um, it is an unmet need. Um, um, as I was telling Mr. Brady last night, we actually have two drugs. I'm not proud of those drugs. I didn't develop those drugs, but I'm happy to be critical of those drugs. Um, we have two drugs that have been labeled antifibrotics, Profenadol, which we don't entirely know the Mechanism of Action, but has been around for about 20 years, along with nintendinib, which is a protein kinase inhibitor. It's a dirty kinase inhibitor. It inhibits multiple kinases in the signaling cascade in cellular biology. And both of them went through pivotal clinical trials a couple years ago in back-to-back articles in the New England Journal showing that when you administer profanadone or nintendinib to patients, you basically attenuate it. I say attenuate it but did not flatten, did not improve lung function over the course of the clinical trials. And this has been the experience. Now, for the oncologist that might be crowd or might be listening, this is sort of the same thing. It's a single-drug therapy, and these are the outcomes that we used to get with cisplatin for a lot of cancers in the 60s. We slowed the number of patients that were dying. We really didn't do it. We, this is not an acceptable endpoint here. So, so the question is, is why might that be? And so there's multiple challenges. And so the challenges include and what I've listed here. It is a rare disease, so you have to find a lot of patients you know, to do clinical trials. Now, we're getting better at that, and, um, and I think that that's, that's something that's sort of you know um, coming to an end. It's also um, IPF is the final common pathways. Could there be multiple causes? And what we see you know, on a CAT scan is that really just a final common pathway for multiple molecular uh, etiologies. The ones I'm going to focus on is I think that we've had an incomplete understanding of IPF pathogenesis. So every drug in the clinic, every drug in the clinical trial actually was done and probably developed on a different paradigm than the one I'm going to present to you today. So I think we can do better, and I think the horizons are great for doing better, but we just have to get there in terms of how long it takes to do drug development. We have suboptimal preclinical animal models. I'm going to spend a bunch of the time because that's what we've been successful at doing in the last couple of years is develop some preclinical animal models, which we think will now be able to change how we're going to develop drugs to treat the disease. We have limitations of translational specimens, what I call the biopsy conundrum, and I'll get to that um, in the middle of the talk. And then we've picked wrong or singular pathways. And again, I think at the end, I am hoping to convince you that we need to treat this like cancer, where we have two, three therapies. We, we go on and off, and we sort of figure this out in terms of trying to sort of knock down the, the devastating fibrotic remodeling that you see. The rest of these I won't follow on. And this is what, uh, what I was getting at. All of the drugs that were developed really came out of this classic paradigm that was actually in the older textbooks in, in, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. This was Fishman's textbook of medicine, uh, who was my former division chief, by the way. Um, and um, the idea was is that there was some sort of Im- damage to the epithelium or some sort of insult that led to an inflammatory component to this that then damaged the epithelium and created a hole in the lung. And then you had to make a decision, and the lung had to try to repair, which we call re-epithelialization, or it went on to do if you cut yourself in the skin and it's a big enough scar, you get a big scar. Um, and so this issue of decision of repair of fibrosis, and all of the therapies that we had um, for the last 20 years have either been directed at the fibroblast or um, putting down the matrix, or inflammation, trying to knock down inflammation. And many of you remember some of the pivotal clinical trials with anti-inflammatories, interferon gamma, corticosteroids, and um, cyclophosphamide. You know, Cyclosporin. All of these things failed. And in fact, in some of the cases in the Panther trial, we did a lot more harm to patients than, do, than we did good. And so this idea that inflammation was a cause sort of has fallen out of vogue, but that doesn't mean that inflammation is not important. We just don't know which kind of inflammation is good, which kind of inflammation is bad, and how we should go after it. And so what I'm going to try to convince you now in the next few slides is that this paradigm is sort of wrong, that we need to think about pushing the epithelial cell up to the proximal piece of this pathway. And then from that driving this forward and then looking at how we're going to intervene in in some of the epithelial dysfunction, I'm going to show you for which we've been informed by a lot of the rare diseases that um, that I've been able to encounter in my career. And so before I do that, I have to tell you about my favorite cell. I've studied this cell for over 30 years. This is the alveolar type 2 cell. Those of you um, in medical school remember that this is the cell that secretes pulmonary surfactant, pulmonary surfactant is an important substance in the alveolar space that keeps the, the airways patent at low lung volumes. Children that are born prematurely have an immaturity of their type 2 cells, and hence a deficiency in surfactant. Surfactant replacement therapy for neonates has been made a remarkable uh, impact on the lives of children everywhere, and which is, is a great success story. The type 2 cell is interesting, and, 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 it, and it sort of sets itself up for a lot of dysfunction, is that it's, it's a classic secretory polarized epithelial cell. That is, it has a lysosoma-like related organelle to which pro proteins, the surfactant proteins, and the phospholipid, this skimish of, of phospholipid and, and, and protein that's secreted, um, and it's secreted by regulated exocytosis into the alveolar space, into the air spaces. And then it actually also participates in the reuptake. So there are diseases where you have too much surfactant, a rare disease called pulmonary alveolar proteinosis um, for um, one of them. But um, but the, but the cell itself um, is just critical, not only for a surfactant, and we'll get into that, but for other reasons. I want to point out two things. The ABCA3 in, my, in the title of my talk is that this lipid pump shown here pumps phospholipid into the lamellar body um, shown here. And you can see here on these EMs that the cells can be identified by electron microscopy, but these beautiful swirls of, of what basically is phospholipid. And then these actually go and fuse with the plasma membrane, as I show in the cartoon, and actually deliver this gamish of, of protein and lipid into the alveolar space. So that's the ABCA3 part of this. There are four surfactant proteins, ABC and D, um, named in the order of discovery. B and C are the ones that are important for the biophysical activity. That those are the ones that are in the pediatric surfactant replacement therapies that are on the market today. Um, all of these, are, or the bulk of these, get trafficked from their synthesis in the ER through the Golgi. All the way to these lysosomal related organelles, and then through classic stimulus secretion coupling, these actually get released into the alveolar space. So that's sort of the basic cell biology of, of, this, um, of this cell. So, but it doesn't exist in isolation. It actually exists just as in a tumor and a microenvironment, which people have now sort of called the alveolar niche. And it's a complex interaction of not only the alveolar type 2 cells, and this is a seminal paper from Ed Morrissey's lab from our place. Uh, in cell a couple years ago, where they actually mapped out the cell fate of many of these cells. And they were able to show very nice interactions between alveolar type 2 cells and some of these mesenchymal cells. And one of these mesenchymal cells was profibrotic. And so there's this crosstalk all the time going on in the alveolar space to sort of keep homeostasis. And the proof of that comes from multiple different kinds of experiments. Christine Markowskis at Duke, uh, working with Bridget Hogan, um, developed an assay, an organite assay. You see organite assays now for everywhere. You see organoid assays in the gut. You see organoid assays for the airways. Um, it's basically taking some of these cells, putting them back into an artificial culture uh, condition, and then creating what actually looked like little alveoli shown here. And what, what Christine was able to show um, using isolated type 2 cells and putting them in culture with mesenchyme was that these formed balls that looked like alveoli, and that the cells were only not only self-renewing, but that they could also transdifferentiate into the other important cell that covers most of our um, alveolar, alveolar lining type 1 cell. So they meet the criteria for being a stem cell. So one of the stem cells in the lung is the alveolar type 2 cell. Now there are other ones that have been um, recently reported through a lot of complex mouse studies. I won't go into those, but, but I think the message here is that the cell is not only important for surfactant biology, but it's actually important if you actually want to regenerate an injured lung. And so this comes up in, 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 in multiple cases, including things like acute lung injury. And so um, sort of the proof that this could be important for homeostasis was a very nice study that came out of the University of Michigan now almost 10 years ago um, from Sisson et al. And they basically said if we take and use a genetic strategy to delete the type 2 cells from the mouse lung, what happens? Well, it turns out they develop pulmonary fibrosis. And so this is shown here biochemically by an assay for hydroxyproline, which is a surrogate for collagen deposition. Above and then this is a trichrome staining, and some of these lesions that look like a little bit like fibroblastic foci shown down here. So you need the T2 cell in crosstalk with the mesenchyme. If you remove one of these or disrupt this niche homeostasis, you can start to get abnormal injury, abnormal repair type responses. And then we get to the rare diseases. Okay, so. So the second piece of data, not only when you obliterate the type 2 cell, but if you simply render it dysfunctional, you predispose to, to fibrosis. Now whether it's spontaneous fibrosis or whether in a mouse model it's predisposition to bleomycin, that's a subject of uh, debate as to whether that's relevant. But, um, but there are multiple mutations in, 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 in patients now that have been associated with this. The aforementioned ABCA3 transporter that pumps lipid into those lysosome-related organelles um, in the case of a null mutation, it's neonatal lethal, and that's what I've shown here is that basically you don't get any lamellar bodies. But there are mutations that actually create um, other forms of trafficking defects, other forms of cellular stress, and they're associated with the development of interstitial lung disease in both um, children and in adults. And the same thing is true for uh, for the telomere syndromes. So you probably know the telomere syndromes from the dyskeratosis and the bone marrow failure, but, um, but recently, this is a CAT scan. from patient with a mutation in one of the enzymes that's responsible for capping our chromosomes so that we don't get short telomeres as we age. And um, this premature aging of the lung is shown here with a lot of fibrosis that looks a lot like usual interstitial pneumonitis, the, uh, the lesion that's characterized by IPF. And that's shown here. And then the third one is hermansky pudlak syndrome. So hermansky pudlak syndrome, for those that are taking the boards, is a syndrome that's now caused by nine different genetic mutations in proteins. That are important for trafficking of organelles inside cells. And so the patients tend to be um, albinos because you need melatonin uh, you know, melan- uh, melanin traffic properly to your skin cells. They tend to have bleeding disorders because platelets are involved in this. And invariably, in certain subclasses, HPS2 and 4 and 1, if you wait long enough, and that is to a 30 years old, you get a CAT scan that looks like this. So this again looks just like the CAT scan I showed you for pulmonary fibrosis. They do uh, UIP. Showing here is basically subplural articulation, some honeycombing, et cetera, indistinguishable from that. This is also from a mutation that affects the alveolar type 2 cell, shown here. So, rare diseases that have a phenotype in the alveolar type 2 cell can cause lesions that look similar to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, again, implicating the type 2 cell as one of the drivers of the fibrotic, of the injury and aberrant fibrotic response. And then the last one. The last piece of data for this is, is actually my favorite protein. I've actually studied this protein for about 30 years. I was doing the biology of this protein because I was trying to figure out how to make a better surfactant for the pediatric population. And so we, um, we did a lot of um, preclinical studies, in vitro studies. Um, this is surfactant protein C. It's one of the two hydrophobic proteins that's in pulmonary surfactant. It's so hydrophobic that all, all these valine leucine isoleucines means it has quite an avidity for lipid, which makes it a nightmare for the cell to try to actually synthesize and secrete, because most of it would just get bottled up in, in cellular membranes. And so the protein's made as a proprotein. It's about 197 amino acids, it gets cleaved to, to multiple, uh, through multiple proteases, down to the short form that then gets complex with lipid, gets secreted into the alveolar space, and then um, does its job as a surfactant protein. It turns out that there's over 60 mutations. In this, and I should say that this protein is only made in one cell in the body, that is the alveolar type 2 cell. There are 60 mutations that have been described, and the list is growing, of mutations associated with the development of either pediatric interstitial lung disease, or as I'll show you in a second here, a combination. This is from a familial study that was done at, um, at Vanderbilt um, now almost 17 years ago. Um, this is a mutation in one domain, um, which we'll call the bronchose domain, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But the patients, actually, the adults had <coughs> usual interstitial humanitis. If you looked at the biopsies of the, of the uh, younger patients, they actually had non-specific interstitial humanitis, another interstitial lung disease. It raises question in terms of the pathogenesis of IPF as to whether NSIP, non-specific interstitial pneumonitis, was related to UIP. And I think that, that this is the kind of genetic evidence in, in, a, in, a, in a cohort that would say that maybe this is a spectrum. And I should say that in kids, it looks like NSIP with some other inflammatory changes. So, um, so. Um, to go back to the biology of the protein for a second. So there's four domains for this. The, the, the one I told you, the surfactant protein part that gets secreted is shown here. There's an amino terminal targeting domain shown here. And then there's this large carboxy tail. And I've drawn in here some cysteine residues. And so for the biochemist in the, the crowd, you know this is important for um, protein or, or dis- disulfide-mediated protein folding. And so um, there are two cysteines here. This mutation or, or in the last 100 amino acids um, the domain has actually been structurally similar in protein databases to proteins that have been pulled out of the brains of patients with dementia, familial dementia in Britain uh, and in Denmark, and it was termed Brichos domain. And so, so this um, part of the surfactant protein C proprotein got incorporated into that nomenclature. So we call the C terminus the Brichos domain, and for the rest of the talk, that, that's what I'll be referring to. There's also a linker domain that links the, the SPC uh, carboxy tail, the domain, with the mature SPC. And it turns out that this, the most common mutation that comes up again and again, it's a genetic hotspot, is a mutation in that linker domain at the 73rd codon, which is an isoleucine for threonine substitution and, and is referred to now as I73T. And this has come up both in cohorts of children, and we published a case with Frank Brasch in Germany in 2004. This is the pathology shown here. This is a pathology from a, a, um, a Duke cohort um, showing again, um, looking like UIP lesions, subpleural fibrosis, fibroblastic foci shown here. So again, the spectrum of these mutations leads to sort of a slightly different response uh, to the lung, um, but nonetheless um, can occur in both adults and children. So, so what does all this mean? So you take all of what I just told you, put it together. And this is the new model that we're working off of. And that is that it's not inflammation damaging the cell, but that you actually have a vulnerable cell made vulnerable by a variety of genetics, genetics we know about and genetics we don't know about, but there's probably sort of a two-hit phenomenon. So you know that most of your patients had prior smoking. We live in an oxidizing environment now of ozone non-attainment in a lot of areas, which can flare, um, cause flares in IPF. Um, we have viral infections. People describe viral like syndromes before they come to the clinic. You know, months later, with can't breathe, and they actually have a cascade that shows IPF. So we have this model now. We have a vulnerable epithelium through second hits, which then leads to either. Death of the cell, termed apoptosis here, or activation of cell stress pathways. This can lead to the recruitment of inflammatory cells. This can lead to the recruitment of fib- fibroblast mesenchyme. And again, now, um, both type 2 cell hyperplasia, which you see in the biopsies, along with a thickened um, interstitial and, re- and frank coalescence into a, um, into a fibroblastic focus shown here. And so the question is, how do you model this? And so. Based upon all the biology that I, that I just told you, um, we had a philosophy in the lab was that you know, it was go big or go home. And that's, that's sort of what, we, what we, we feel. And that if you look at all the mutations I just described, they fall sort of into two categories. One is they're really rare. So the FPC mutations are about 1% or 2% of all the patients with interstitial lung disease or IPF. Um, and you have these more common ones that you've probably heard about, MUC5B. Um TALIP, which was important as a maybe as a predictor for who passes or fails in a, in a repeat of the panther trial with azathioprine, and some of these other mutations shown out here in the telomerases. So these are a little more common, relatively more common, but have a much lower effect size. And what do I mean by a lower effect size? Well, either you can prove in patients that it's it that it's, it seems strong enough to drive the reaction, or if you go to make a transgenic mouse model, um, you can actually recapitulate the disease. And so I will tell you that the MUC5b mouse, the overexpressing mouse, does not have a spontaneous um, phenotype. We took the notion that, given the severe cellular disruption that I'm about to show you with SPC, um, that this would be a better model. We wanted to create extreme phenotypes to determine then molecular pathways and then go back and validate that in in human cohorts. And that's sort of been our strategy to try to come up with um, how we're going to change thinking about the pathogenesis. So um, so I need to tell you a few things. We've done a lot of cell biology looking at the traffic of these proteins, and we did the same thing with the mutants. As the mutants were being described, and my friend Larry Nogi at Hopkins runs a, a molecular uh, uh, sequencing lab down there at Hopkins that has sequenced most of the kids and most of the adults that have these the, the mutations, and he sends me these mutations about every other month. And So in order to determine whether one is a mutation or polymorphism, we basically put them into cells. And what we do is we actually take um, and we make constructs of DNA, cDNAs, um, and we hook them up to reporters. In this case, it's a protein that glows. It's a jellyfish protein found um, that years ago that actually will glow under the microscope. And so when you hook that up to the protein, express that in a cell, and you do that with the normal protein, what you can see here, I think, is very clear, is a punctate pattern. This is the normal biosynthesis trafficking and deposition of surfactant protein C into a lysosomal-related organelle shown here. So what about the mutants? So the mutants we found, over the years, have fallen into two categories. The ones I showed you, the um, um, the ones in the prekios domain, the ones that are responsible for misfolding, as you might predict, they actually do misfold. They're insoluble when, when you actually take cell extracts. They're insoluble in, in, in detergents, shown down here on this western one. And up here, you can see under the microscope that they actually form aggregates right here. In addition, they cause a whole host of cellular responses, which we'll get into in a second. But one of um, emphasizing here is they actually cause death in the cell. And this is a, this is a stain for an XN5 on the plasma membrane of a cell that is dying from apoptosis, or programmed cell death. So you can see that the cells that have the aggregates also have the annexin XN5 staining. So that's one phenotype, one cellular phenotype. The other one is, is completely different, and I think it's pretty obvious. So, so now what we did is you take and, um, and hook this up to another reporter, in this case just a hemoglutin antigen, same, same, same sort of thing and do some immunostaining. The wild-type protein is the same punctate pattern. So the, um, the actual tag on this does not influence the behavior of the proteins. And in addition, instead of aggregating, instead of going to vesicles, you see this on the outside of the cell. This is the plasma membrane. So this has a very interesting biology. It goes um, summarized here. These I73T, or non-bricose proteins, get to trafficked to the, to the um, plasma membrane. They don't get processed. They don't get secreted. They get reabsorbed, uh, re-idocytosed. And they actually interfere with um, Some cell quality control or macroautophagy. So, macroautophagy is important in the the brains for the controlling of um, aggregated proteins in the brain, tau, and some of the other uh, proteins involved in neurodegeneration. And the other protein, and that's shown here, that's shown here. So, we actually have evidence of of inhibition of macroautophagy. This was all done in cell lines. So, again, this is all in vitro work. This has nothing to do with the mouse yet. The aggregating proteins, as I showed you before, shown over here, cause a whole different cell, cell response. I told you that they caused apoptosis. This is just biochemical evidence of apoptosis, staining for caspase 3 on a western blot. They caused endoplasmic reticular stress. So the cell recognizes that the protein is misfolded, needs to do something about it, and upregulate stress pathways. Prolonged stress leads to apoptosis, and it leads to cytokine release. And this was a study we did years ago, where this was the release of interleukin-8, which is a neutrophil chemotractant, um, into the culture medium shown here. So we now have Mutations that have two different cellular behaviors, they induce two different cellular responses. They both alter quality control. One alters the macro-autophagy pathway. One alters the unfolded protein response in the ubiquitin proteasome system. And so the question is, is any of this relevant? How would we model this? So we set out to create two different mouse models, one of the aggregating proteins and one of the mistrafficking proteins. And the, and the first one was we picked was this I73T because it was the most common, and we figured that would give us the biggest bang for our buck in trying to get clinical specimens to corroborate some of this. And so um, to make a long story short and about a year and a half stress on our postdocs time, we came up with a strategy. The proteins were so toxic to the, to the mouse, developing mouse, line, that we ended up for a year getting no live mice by simply trying to express this and knocking this into the, to the SPC locus. And so what we then did was we created a hypomorphic model where we had actually a neomycin cassette in the first intron of the SPC um, uh, cDNA shown here a genetic structure shown here, and that what we are able to do then is cross that to what's called a deleter mouse. And the deleter mouse would turn on when you give it another drug, in this case tamoxifen. You can give doxycycline. There's a lot of strategies to do this. And so when you do that, you take out the inhibitory cassette. And the data shown here. So the mice are born live. They only have about 20% of the SPC. Now, fortunately for us, you don't need SPC to live. You have the other surfactant protein, SPB. So we're really running on four cylinders in terms of our surfactant, but that's good enough for, for, uh, for breathing. But when you actually take and give the mice oxygen, within three days we have a huge upregulation in the amount of message for SPC shown here. And then, the, and then as I warned the lab, the fun was going to start. And so then what happens is I'm going to show you the time course. But what happens these are Kaplan-Meier survival curves. And so just by taking out this this neomycin cassette, increasing the STC RNAs, you now have, at about 7 to 10 days, death starts. And so much death in the lab that the IMCAC got involved. And my lab was shut down for two months until I could explain why I needed to kill so many mice to to cure idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I was able to negotiate with them to a lower dose, which is shown here. And it's interesting, the deaths at at around 10 to 14 days, I show you this. This is not fibrosis. This is acute lung injury. Right? So this is, this is a lot of inflammation. These are infiltrates. These are little mouse cat scans that we do. You can see the patchy infiltrate shown here. Um, and so in so two weeks, we think that this is actually sort of becoming a model for acute exacerbations of interstitial lung disease, where you, you take patients that have you know, pre-existing lung disease. They get an exacerbation. They come to the ICU. 50% of them die in the ICU. We don't have a mouse ICU. And then, um, and then they go on. And of the people that survive, they lose lung function and they get fibrosis, and that's shown here. So if we, if we actually power the study that we get enough survivors to do this, we end up with, with what looks like fibroblastic foci, shown here. This is staining for collagen. This is trichrome. We have a lot of subplural collagen, shown here. Uh, we looked at collagen and matrix deposition in multiple ways before we would believe it. This is total collagen by a soluble collagen assay, or the circle assay, shown here. Let's see if that's going to... There we go. And then this is collagen gene expression on the right, for collagen 3A1. We also have a little mouse pulmonary function lab. It's a terminal experiment, unlike your pulmonary function lab here. We hook them up to a ventilator and do forced oscillation and can measure um, compliance curves. And I think you can see right here for the pulmonary and the crowd, we have evidence of restriction. I'm going to go to the pen pointer. So that was the green dart pointer. This is, I think, the red pen pointer. Here. So, um, and so then we have restriction shown here. and This is a decrease in static compliance. So we published this in the JCI in 2018. um, And this was the first proof of principle that you could get a model that didn't have to see bleomycin to get spontaneous lung fibrosis in this short time period. There are mouse models out there with telomerase mutations, but they take four to six months and oftentimes still need a little bit of bleomycin. So we think that we've made advances in terms of how we're going to model this. So then um, we went and then made a second model. And that's shown here. So we now model this misfolding, breakers mutation, the ones that like to aggregate, and this was uh, worked on by Jeremy Katzen, who's a very um, talented and promising junior faculty member in, in our group. Um, pretty much the same thing. We set it up for Jeremy. We teed it up. He already knew that we had to make a hypomorph. We had we already knew that really how we were going to do this, and so he was able to knock this out in about nine months, um, and published the last year in JCI Insight. Um, and again, the same sort of thing. When you take out the neomycin cassette, the gene regulation um, is released, and you end up with a nice upregulation. regulation And I'm just showing you the endpoints. He gets a fibrotic endpoint shown here. He gets collagen. He gets COL1A uh, gene expression. He has very nice evidence of fibromycin foci and that we're staining now. Um, and I'll always get this messed up because of the red-green color blindness. But there is stain for a epithelial protein surfactant protein B It's smooth muscle actin. And you can see the red and the green sort of in opposition shown here very nicely. And so we have fibrosic foci. And interestingly, when you actually stain for fibrillar collagen with the picocereous acid, which I really have grown to like, even in areas that don't look this bad, so this is the, sort of the alveoli that are sort of not as grossly affected, we have a lot of fibrillar collagen deposition in, in the septa here. So, um, so already um, a lot of these other areas that look sort of normal under the light microscopy are already starting to model, shown here. And some of the other data shown here for static compliance from the mouse pulmonary function studies and collagen gene expression shown here. So we have two models, and, um, and interestingly, just um, as an aside, they actually recapitulate all that cell biology I showed, you. I won't, I won't belabor this, but the, the, the misfolded ones get ER retention of the protein when you stain the cells in the, in, the, in the lung sections. They get evidence of ER stress, um, shown here. The ones that are mistrafficked have impaired macroautophagy. This is Western blotting for, for LC31, LC32, and P62, showing an inhibition in macroautophagy. We have the trafficking to the plasma membrane, shown here. and on um, uh, electromicroscopy, we actually have impaired not only macroautophagy but we have impaired mitophagy and an accumulation of multiple dysfunctional mitochondria. And so there's a metabolic reprogramming programming that could go on in this phenotype as well, based upon you know, this kind of data. And does that make any difference? So now, back to the clinicians. Does this matter um, translationally? Well, it turns out that if you look for all of those cell quality control defects that I showed you in the, in the genetic mouse models, you can find them both in the genetic human models of surfactant protein C mutations. And this is work from um, Tim Blackwell's group at Vanderbilt showing staining for ER stress with a brichose mutation. This is the one that they described in that cohort I showed you in the, about five slides ago, the L188Q folding mutation. This is data we have from a patient with I73T mutation. This is an EM showing accumulation of these large vacuoles in the cells of the patient's uh, alveolar type 2 cells. So we get the same signals shown here. And then in sporadic IPF. So this is work from Andres Gunther's group uh, in Gießen, in Germany. Martina Korfi was the lead author. She isolated epithelial cells, stained it, and looking for ER stress. This is shown here by xdp one splicing, shown only in IPF patients, not in COPD patients. Shown here in evidence of apoptosis um, and, um, and the stress pathways downstream. You can also find, and this is work with uh, Murray Weno in the University of Pittsburgh, showing evidence of, again, increased P62 and LC3 in in donor or in lungs coming out of IPF, patients undergoing transplant in the Pittsburgh program, shown here. So translationally, the cell stress quality control signals come up in a sporadic IPF. And so we think that a combination of of these two models that we've developed in the lab can then sort of inform as to um, which pathways are really important, which is what's driving this epithelial dysfunction. And so I want to, for the rest of the talk, sort of share with you some mostly unpublished data um, about how we've used this model. So the question is, why even use the model? So you say, great, you publish two papers, you prove that this is a cause and effect, you've got these pathways, that's great. Well, we're limited in IPF. So one of the things that's limited, limiting this is what I've called the biopsy conundrum. And this is this is really the you know, decision-making that um, has come out of the ATS um, um, you know, statement uh, that Ganesh Raghu um, uh, chaired years ago, saying that if you have a classic CAT scan that looks like classic UIP pattern from a radiologist, and you go to a multidisciplinary conference to actually adjudicate this, that that's pretty good, that you pretty much can be enrolled in a trial now, you pretty much have you know, IPF, and you pretty much you know are, are, would be eligible for therapy based upon your lung function and, and other things. And so, so we don't get any biopsies anymore of IPF at the time of diagnosis. So what we do get is all this other stuff that doesn't look like classic IPF on a CAT scan that may have a little whiff of collagen vascular disease or something else. And so what you're getting in those biopsy specimens is not IPF. So you can't really use that to sort of go back and compare things to to other models. And So that's a a big issue. The second piece of this is that um, when we get patients that transplant, this is what they look like. Or autopsy. This is end-stage scarred-down lung for which most of the events I showed you in the mouse model, that nice progression from early inflammation, death, survival, fibrosis, this is what you're getting with the patient. So it becomes a real problem. So I think that the the power of using the models is actually to to start to um, dissect out some of the pathways. And so we've created what I call a fit-for-purpose model. And so you can use the model now to look at the temporal and spatial modeling of the disease evolution which you can't do in patients, because we only, if we get one biopsy, that's all we get. If we get it, it's usually late, as I, as I mentioned before. And it also gives a, a good understanding of being able to use other genetics and NICE to actually look at the polycylidic crosstalk that I told you was going on in the alveolar niche and what's disrupted in the fibrotic lung. And um, so that becomes, um, uh, that's, that's what we've done. So as I said, you, know, you have these two different models. One's misfolded, one's mistrafficked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera where do they converge? They converge for sure at the fibrotic endpoints. I already showed you that. But but if you actually, and I show you in detail, they actually, you get from here to here, they both go through that inflammatory phase. So, so Jeremy's mouse model, I didn't show you the data, had even worse prognosis from, or survival from uh, inflammatory um, uh, mediated injury and death. So we know that now, even early on, as early as two weeks into the, into the course of this in terms of the modeling, we actually have Huge amounts of of inflammation, and it turns out that, um, and I alluded to acute exacerbations of IPF pro, uh, previously. What you have here is you actually have a polycellular alveolitis. So if any of you've done bronchoscopies on patients with like, to exclude infection in patients with IPF exacerbations, you find things like polys. You know, you find things like eosinophils, which I was shocked. But it turns out in the mouse model, when you actually do this, this is a GIMSA stain showing polys and um, uh, eosinophils, and you can quantitate this. And it occurs in both models. And, we, and, we, and this is all part of the, the prior publications. But we have, you know, and we have waves of this. So we have, you know, we have a very early wave of macrophages. This is neutrophils. We have a neutrophil wave at around 14 days. We have an eosinophil wave later in the course of this. And so they're coming and going. So there's a lot going on here. So, so that's partly where they converge is actually at this. And as a model for this, if you believe that microinjuries are important in IPF, this is probably what's going on at a microscopic level in patients that don't have acute exacerbations in terms of the injury repair. We have tons of cytokines. I won't go through all this, it'll just it'll drive you crazy, but we have tons of the cytokines that you need to draw those those cells into the alveolar space, coming from the type 2 cells. So we have messenger RNA, we have fluid levels, and we have things like um, CCL-17, which is TARC, a profibrotic cytokine. We have things like IL-5 and Eotaxin, which are which are notorious for bringing in incident cells into the whole thing. What we don't have, which is interesting, which someone may ask me at the end of the talk and I'll preempt, is we don't have IL-4. We don't have IL-13. Why is that important? So we, we have a TH2 alternate pathway recruiting eosinophils, And so as you know, there's clinical trials going on right now for dupupumab in IPF. My prediction is this will fail miserably because we, we just don't see it in either of these models where we get a classic TH2 response, although we get things like an IL-5 in the attacks. So can we take this back a little further? Where, so do they, they converge in you know, 14 days, you have this alveolitis. What's going on maybe two, three days after we turn on the genes? And, and we, we took a candidate approach. And again, this is what I'm saying about how rare diseases can inform. Years ago, we published a paper with Susan gooden at Vanderbilt. She had a mouse model of Hermansky-Pudelak syndrome. As I said to you, they invariably gets the same sort of lesions. The Hermansky-Pudelak mice actually end up um, as their type 2 cells are starting to deteriorate from the accumulation of phospholipid because all of their organelle trafficking is is screwed up, they actually release a a chemo attractive for macrophages and monocytes termed um, MCP1 or CCL2. Um, Lisa Young, who uh, has just moved from Vanderbilt to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, did a very nice genetic study in mice showing that the susceptibility of the HPS mice Dibliomycin could be attenuated by taking out the, map, uh, the signaling pathway, the CCR2 receptor on macrophages only and attenuating the injury. So the hypothesis was, it was, it, was, it, was um, not, it was not unbiased but completely biased towards this that we thought that this might actually be informing us early on in our models. And so that's exactly what happened. If you look at three days and message levels in both models for um, CCL2 message levels in alveolar type 2 cells, you see a huge upregulation of that in both of these. If you look in the lavage fluid, the extracellular space, we have uh, a wave of MCP-1 coming up as early as three days um, in, in the BAL of both these models. And so what does that bring in? Well, it turns out that um, a very talented postdoc in my lab, Alessandro Venosa, who's now at the University of Utah, had a fact strategy, a flow cytometry strategy based upon seminal work done by Micheron and Scott Buttinger in, in Chicago. And, and he was able to pull out as early as three days the appearance of what have been termed LY6C high monocytes, which are pro-inflammatory, pro-fibrotic, which have been shown in models of gliomycin, come into the mouse lung, persist for weeks and weeks and weeks, and stay there through the entire fibrotic process. They've also found some of this on single-cell RNA-seq in um, uh, in, in some of their IPF patients. And so, so this is really the seminal event. This is occurring as early as three days. This is nothing that you would detect on a CAT scan. This is nothing that you would detect clinically. But this is what's probably going on all the time in various regions of the lung. As you know, IPF is also defined by its spatial and temporal heterogeneity. So you have areas of that horrible fibrosis with areas of normal lung. And so so the idea is is that you're trying to preserve the normal lung. We ought to think about the pathways here that are happening sort of in the normal lung as to whether we're going to reclaim the fibrosis is probably uh, of question.
0: Um,
1: And then Alessandro went on and did a a proof of concept study where he asked the question. If I take out these OY6C high monocytes, do I preserve or can I attenuate the injury? And he's an immunologist. He's into the injury, not the fibrosis. Um, and he used intravenous clodronate. And intravenous clodronate actually will take out all of these intravenous monocytes that are recruited from the bone marrow. And so that's what's shown here is that he gave mice, um, at the same time that we induced the gene expression, we were able to attenuate the CCR2 monocytes in the lung, shown here. We were able to improve survival, um, shown here. And we were able to um, alter the inflammatory milieu of the BAL flow and attenuate this, and not abrogate, but attenuate the, the acute lung injury. So there's a role, we think, for the LY-60 site shown here. Okay. Um, so that's one great thing. The other thing about IPF trials is we have no biomarkers that, that really work, um, and we really need something better. So we measure all the clear endpoints in trials are either um, pulmonary function, physiology, forced vital capacity, um, or death. Uh, which is not a great biomarker that you want to use, and so, um, so we really need better biomarkers. And so we think that these models are actually going to be helpful to come up with biomarker discovery. And it's proof that this is going to be possible in the future. I'll show you some data that we generated in the lab and was part of the JCI paper. Um, we, we took a candidate approach. There, were, there had been this seminal paper for using a, a panel of proteins in the serum of patients with IPF. They started out with about 40 proteins. And and Eric White and colleagues actually narrowed it down to three proteins: um, osteopontin, surfactant protein D, and a matrix metalloproteinase MMP7. And And they actually showed that they had fairly good predictive value for the diagnosis of IPF. So, um, but one by itself was not good. You need sort of all three of these in in concert. And so what we did is this is actually um, uh, BAL fluid from the mice stained for osteopontin on a Western SPD. And seven, and what you see is that we have nice increases in, in all three of these. And what's really important about this is that if you look at this carefully, the kinetics of this, the ontogeny of what's going up, what's going down, is, is not the same. And so this is probably why you need three in patients, because patients are at various stages of disease in large trials. They're at various stages of disease within their own lung. And so the really only way to do this is actually to get a, a, a you know, prediction to use three or more of these. So our plan going forward now is we're actually taking um, an unbiased approach to this. Is we're going to do shotgun proteomics on both the serum and the BAL of both of these mouse models, and we have a cohort of 225 IPF patients at Penn, uh, for which we have serum at the time of entry, and we have serums whenever they develop and if they develop an acute exacerbation. And so we're actually now going to start an unbiased approach and come down on this and come up with try to come with better predictive models so, um, using using the mouse models, and then. Um, just two slides on some interesting genetics, this is all on published data. We can use this as a tool to say, you know, is, are the alveolar type 2-cell phenotypes the same in both of our models and do they resemble anything that's going on in the IPF log? So we're at the stage with the mouse again. And what we've done is we've now taken and done RNA-seq. So basically for those that aren't familiar with this, is you can isolate a population of cells and you can sequence um, uh, broadly through a next-gen platform and come up with all the changes in the transcriptome that change. Um, uh, within, within, the, uh, within the population of cells. This is not single-cell RNA-seq, but, uh, but this is now purifying type 2 cells, and this is one of the models, the I73T model, where we actually have taken it 3-day, 14-day, and 42-day. And of all the gene changes, they tend to cluster by uh, principal component analysis, so the cells that are, that are all at the 14-day are similar to each other, and they're all different than the wild-type. And there's this evolution of gene expression. As early as three days, it makes you different from the wild-type um, type 2 cell, and it evolves 14 days and and, and such. We have massive gene changes. We have over 3,000 genes um, using fairly conservative um, criteria for what's different. These are volcano plots down here. The 3,000 genes at day three are not the same 3,000 genes at at day 14, not only confirmed by this. But if you look at the heat maps for this, you can see that at three days, we have a whole pattern that looks like this. It's different than the wild type. 14 days is different than that, and then the, the six-week or 42 days is this. So we have, um, we're have, now sort of dissecting through this uh, to now try to figure out uh, appropriate pathways to interrogate them to, to figure out what's, what's driving some of these changes in the phenotype. Um, some of that bioinformatics is shown here. Some interesting things. I told you that some of these cells are hyperproliferative, proliferative Well, we have an increase in cell cycle proteins if you look at pathway analysis and DNA replication. We have increases in pathways that are important and are being interrogated right now for possibilities for IPF therapies. WET signaling, uh, the JAK-STAT pathway, all important for promotion of proliferation, all important for the important stemness of the type 2 cell that makes it um, um, to become a type 1 cell. And then we have um, chemokine signaling at 3 days. remember that's where all the action was from the type 2 cell. And we have evidence of extracellular participation in the extracellular matrix. Well, we've started to validate these. This is staining for the Jak Stat pathway. This is staining in the in the in the I seventy three P mouse for phosphorus Stat three shown here. This is the wild type. So we think that this pathway is not only obviously on through pathway analysis, but shown down here. And what could be driving that? Well, one of the cytokines I didn't show you before was IL six. And IL six, as you know, has been important a lot as an indicator in the ARDS The trials, we have World Cup levels of IL six coming out of the of the BAL. We think this is coming from the mesenchyme, and so we're setting up this niche idea that the mesenchyme is actually amplifying the injury repair process, trying to stimulate the, the type 2 cells to actually do what they're supposed to do, but that, that, that this somehow goes awry. But this is massive levels of IL-6 that you can see here. And then the last two or three slides, I wanted to also to share with you what is is a really neat data. It's not our data, but it uses our model, um, but you can use this model as a proof of concept. What I did show you is that of all the mice that died and almost killed the postdoc's career for a year, we, we came up with an interesting um, observation that when you induced the SPC expression in utero, and mice are not the same as people. Mice are born in the saccular stage of development, and they have eyes while they're weaning in their mom. So there's a nice tool for looking at alveologenesis. But it's a nightmare if you're trying to actually look at uh, what happens developmentally because you can impair a lot of the critical development such as we've done here where now the expression of this in utero is this is the reason why the lungs are stuck in a late saccular stage and they're blocked and they just the mice come out, they can't breathe and we get no live mice. So a very creative surgeon at Children's Hospital and Ed Morrissey, the director of our Lung Biology Institute, came up with this idea. Could we use these new tools? You've all heard about gene editing. So this CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, the stuff that was done... Uh, in China, uh, to edit the genes of, you know of children, um, I think it' be harnessed for, for good rather than evil. And so um, what ed- they came up with the idea that if we could actually inject in a CRISPR Cas9 correction system in utero, into the mice, could we use as a model that if we diagnose children with these mutations, we could actually cure them before they're even born. And so it's a proof of concept. Again, one hundred percent of the mice die. If you don't do anything, there's a huge surge of mortality. You can imagine trying to do in utero hysterotomies on little, a little pregnant mice. Um, but they, they did an amazing um, finding that they could actually salvage 25% of the mice now. So this was statistically and, and really a tour de force in terms of trying to get this done. It was published last year in Science Translation Medicine. So this can now be a platform for a lot of other technologies if you want to try antisense oligonucleotides, other exciting things other than just small molecules in a drug company. This is, um, I think, on the horizon. We want to actually use this as a platform now to sort of uh, interrogate some of the pathways that we find. And then finally, um, we were talking at dinner last night about stem cells. So I wanted to put on a slide um, for the Brody group here with stem cells and uh, and day. So these are not the stem cells that you're making down in Miami. these are pluripotent um, stem cells, iPSCs. And we collaborate with um, a good friend of mine, Darrell Cotton, who was my intern back in the day, and who's now teaching me um, the science of iPSCs. Um, but Darrell, in a, in a paper that we were fortunate to participate in a couple years ago, um, was able to take cells from the peripheral blood, program them back to iPSCs using the classic Yamanaka factor um, pathways. And then through all of the informational knowledge of lung development that's come out over the last 30 years of lung biology, program these things back forward to make type 2 cells. And the proof of that is he has he had very nicely in his paper shown that all of the important proteins in the type 2 cell lipid synthesis, lcap one surfactant proteins, ABCA3, all of those things were upregulated in these cells. And it was, these could now be used as, as disease models. So most recently, um, we were fortunate to get um, cells from a patient that had an SPC mutation. This is the I73T mutation. This makes it really easy. Uh, we know the biology of this. And so Darrell did that. And then, um, and then, so I'm showing you now on the right, is staining for where the SPC is. And I remember I told you that this is all in the plasma membrane. And you can see the cells here are type 2 cells, and they have all of their SPC in the plasma membrane. The gene corrected, so he goes back and corrects the patient's own cells so that we can then do studies in the same genetic background, and, and these are now actually in, um, in cytosolic vessels. And he can reverse the aberrant protein processing on a Western in the mutant to back to what looks like it is shitty with the wild type. So we're now taking the combination of the mouse model and the type 2 cells from this to be able to actually now screen drugs to see if we can improve the trafficking of these proteins and see if we can then put that into the mice and, and correct this as well. So um, I think it's an exciting time. I would use, like, we're not using iPSCs for, for therapy. But we're using it for, for disease modeling and a reductionist approach to try to come up with new therapies and new pathways. So, to sum up, what I've tried to show you is that the unmet need for IPF continues, the drugs that we had were probably based upon a sort of a slightly flawed pathogenesis scheme. Um, and that what I would submit to you now, based upon our data as well as the data that's informed for the patients with these other rare mutations and other proteins or other genes, uh, is that. We think that the type 2 cell is sort of the vulnerable driver of this whole thing, and that through that, you get an amplification phase, and then this becomes self-amplifying, where the inflammatory cells also recruit other inflammatory cells. And then, um, and then this decision to either re-epithelialize is, is downstream, and in, the, in this case, um, the excess definition of collagen leads to the fibrotic lesions shown here. Um, so why is all this important? Um, and this is, just a, this is just a summary cartoon, and it's, you probably won't see it in the back. This came from Dave Letter and, and Fernando Martinez last year in the New England Journal, where they sort of summarized sort of the pathogenesis I just showed you in a linear fashion in a drawing of the alveolus. And very nicely, they identified the three cells that we care about, the macrophage up here, the fibroblast here, and the type two cell. The biggest box right now is for these antifibrotics. And so there's a bunch of other antifibrotics on, on the market. There was a um, there was an uh, antibody um, against alpha V beta 6 that was just taken um, out of phase two due to toxicity and acute lung injury. It was a TG, TGF beta antagonist. There are LPA antagonists. There's a whole bunch of these. These are all antifibrotics. And so, if you look at this, and I ask the question, do you think that we've already we've gone as far as we can by taking something that's so far downstream and blocking the deposition of collagen? And the proof of this is, I think, is, is coming out. This is. Uh, last week at the European Rescue Society, simultaneously uploaded to the New England Journal, this is Kevin Flaherty and, the, and a group that was funded by Berner Engelheim. They now took patients that didn't have classic IPF. They took unclassifiable IPF, or forwarding fibrosis, that some had UIP, IPF-like features, but they were rapidly progressive. That is, they had a 10% drop in their FVC <coughs> over the preceding year or two, and they put them into the trial just as they did for the impulses trial to show that the tentative was going to work and was FDA approved. And what's striking about this is that the, the progressively fibrotic patients at the same time had similar declines in FEC as, the, as what was back in the original trials four years ago that were published, and that the tentative worked. So I would admit that we're not even taking any fibrosis of any cause and making it better, but we're attenuating it. And, and, and the data is strikingly overlaid if, you, if you're trying to do this. And so, I would submit to you that um, we've come as far as we can with one, one pathway. So now the time is to actually now develop and look carefully at the other pieces of this that are in the fibrotic alveolar niche. And I think if we do that, um, I'm really optimistic that we're going to find new pathways and new targets. And that IPF therapy in about 5 to 10 years is going to look very different. It's going to look more like cancer therapy, where, as I mentioned, we're going to have an antifibrotic, we're going to have an anti-inflammatory, and we're going to have some sort of anti-epithelial drug based upon the phenotype. That we actually get from the patients. And, and that may come through the biomarkers that may influence for that. So with that, I will stop. Um, these are all the people that did the work. These are my collaborators. This is the Skyline of Philadelphia. Uh, Show you, this used to be my office. It's no longer my office. I now have a, a, a quite a different view as we move the lab to a new space but with a worse view. And I'll take it any day. We have a very exciting group in Penn. Um, and um, I will stop. And if there's time for questions, I'll, I'll be happy to take them. And thank you for yeah, having me.